Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Greetings, all, and thank you for listening to the saga of World War II, a Cassus Belly project. In this installment, we will cover the Winter War, the occupation of Norway and Denmark, and the early naval engagements of the war. As always, this episode and all episodes are available on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can also find the podcast blog at casusbellypodcast.com slash World War II. That's World War with the number two. I'd also just like to let everyone know ahead of time that I will be traveling here shortly, so there might be a little bit of a gap in production. I'm going to try and get one more episode in before I leave, but I can't make any promises. I'll try to get some writing done while I'm away, though, so that there will be fresh episodes as soon as I get back. Okay, that's enough housekeeping. Let's begin Episode 4, A Phony War and a Winter War. Frankly and definitely, there is danger ahead. Danger against which we must prepare. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. In the fall of 1939, Hitler was at his peak mentally, emotionally, and politically. The world was his, and he had seen only success for a decade. The one setback was the English. He was shocked and disgusted that his Anglo-Saxon cousins would make common cause with the reviled Franks. Otherwise, he was at the top of his game. Physically, he was in excellent shape for a 50-year-old man. His hair remained jet black, and he could still deliver fiery speeches with all the gusto of his youth. Mentally, he was still attached to reality, though reality was still very kind to him, and he was emotionally stable. There was no trace of the paranoia and manic depression that would grip him several years hence. In fact, by all accounts Hitler the man, Adolf, was an amiable, charming man. His contemporaries often spoke of his soft voice and his gentle demeanor in private. He often received busloads of beautiful young women who came to serenade him and he was nothing but a gentleman. Among friends and colleagues he often ate sausage heartily and partook in beer and wine merrily. Coffee and tea kept him well caffeinated, though one can hardly point to that as a source of madness. He never smoked, but he had no qualms with life's other vices. He had also taken on a new lover since the death of Geli Rabul, Ava Brown. She was 13 years his junior, but at least she was unrelated to him. Ava had blonde hair and blue eyes, and by all accounts was sweet and pleasant. She was not particularly beautiful, 
but attractive in a homely way. Besides, she was not a trophy for Hitler. As far as the public was concerned, Der Fuhrer was married to Deutschland and had no time for mistresses. Hitler, the remarkably unremarkable middle-aged man, is probably surprising to some. In popular imagination, we often conjure visions of Hitler as a towering figure, shouting into crowds of thousands, riding in his Mercedes at the head of marching columns, and hunched over tables directing campaigns. Part of this image was intentionally crafted by Goebbels, the master propagandist. He created the image of Hitler as the warrior monk, a Teutonic knight, with nothing to distract him from his mission of German glory. Goebbels portrayed him as an ascetic, who never indulged in luxuries like sex or beer. He kept Eva Braun hidden from all but Hitler's innermost circle, knowing that such an untraditional relationship would offend the still very conservative German population. The first fissure in Hitler's mind would soon begin to crack, though. On November 8th, he celebrated the anniversary of the failed Beer Hall Putsch with a charismatic speech before his party faithful, but left early in order to catch a train. Only minutes later, a bomb exploded behind the lectern, killing only a few low-level party members. Hitler and his entourage were already far from the blast. This was the first assassination attempt Hitler would survive through sheer luck, but not the last. And it had the effect of reinforcing Hitler's belief in his own semi-divinity. He was drinking his own Kool-Aid, so to speak. The image of him as a German savior was created to inspire the populace, not necessarily to fuel his own delusions. This is also when Dr. Morell was starting to have greater influence over the Fuhrer. The doctor had been Hitler's personal physician since 1936, after he cured Hitler's eczema. Until now, the doctor's effect had mostly been to irritate the rest of Hitler's entourage. He is supposed to have eaten like an animal more than a man. He would bring his face to his food and use his pudgy, hairy hands to shovel it into his mouth. Apparently, he had veritably pungent body odor as well. When one of his cronies complained to Hitler, he is said to have remarked, I did not hire Morell for his fragrance. As the war progressed and Hitler's stress rose and health declined, the doctor would pump Hitler full of drugs of every kind. Stimulants in the morning to wake him, then depressants to bring him back down again at night. It was obvious to all around that Morell was a quack of the first degree, but once he had his grip on the Fuhrer, not even the conniving Bormann could loose it. Without a doubt, Morell only hastened Hitler's descent into madness. But for now, the war was progressing well, and der Fuhrer was still in full possession of his faculties. With Germany's appetite for expansion so voracious, Stalin was feeling threatened. To counter this, he consumed the Baltic states, as he was guaranteed by the pact with Germany, then moved on Finland. The plan was a classic Soviet move, and simple enough. Demand each country send a representative to Moscow. When the envoy arrives, he was told to sign a mutual defense treaty and that 100,000 Red Army troops were en route to keep the peace. If the envoy refused, Stalin would suggest to Molotov that perhaps 50,000 would suffice and offer the minister and his government a place in the new regime. It was an offer they couldn't refuse. Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania all agreed to these terms. Finland turned them down. Stalin did make attempts at bargaining with Finland. He wanted to exchange 2,100 square miles of Soviet territory for about 1,000 square miles of Finland around Leningrad in order to make the city more defensible. He was furious with the Finns' obstinacy. Why would they not come to an agreement? The Finns knew all too well what happened when you fed the Russian bear, 
and refused even seemingly beneficial ideas. Besides, the Finns were convinced the Russians were bluffing. They wouldn't actually invade. The Soviet invasion of Finland, often called the Winter War, began on November 30, 1939. Red Army soldiers trooped across the border in gallant fashion. Some units were led by their bands, and others were led by their colors and streamers. They wore only light uniforms, despite the bitter cold of the subarctic winter. They acted more as if on parade than in the midst of an invasion, so sure of themselves that the Finns would not put up a fight. How wrong they were. As his Cass's belly, Stalin used a supposed Finnish bombardment, allowing him to portray the Finns as the aggressors. Never mind the fact that the Finnish army was only 33,000 strong, compared with the Russian invasion force of 100,000, which itself represented only a tenth of the Soviet armed forces. Finland was defended by the formidable Mannerheim Line, so named for its architect, Field Marshal Baron Karl Gustav Emil von Mannerheim. He had gained fame and prestige during the Russian Revolution as a general in the White Army fighting against the Bolsheviks. When the Communists eventually won, and consolidated, he organized Finland into an independent country and ruled until 1919. He returned to command the army during the 1930s and saw the need to fortify the Karelian Isthmus against the Soviets. Thus, the Mannerheim Line was born. It stretched for 80 miles between the Gulf of Finland and Lake Ladoga. Along its length, it was fortified with pillboxes and tank traps. Though it was far from the modern fortress of the Maginot Line, it proved vastly more effective than its French cousin. Finland was defended by its highly skilled and motivated soldiers. They actively sought to exploit Soviet tactical weaknesses. The Red Army in 1939 had no sense of tactical initiative. All soldiers were expected to follow orders regardless of the reality they faced on the ground. The purges of the previous decade had left the army without experienced officers and completely beholden to the will of the commissars. This was true even of field-grade officers. If a battalion was ordered forward, the battalion went forward. The Flins were able to exploit this mercilessly in the wide expanses of wilderness that run north to the Arctic Sea. They would allow the Russians to advance deep into the dense forests, then ambush them and cut them to pieces. They would isolate units and destroy them piecemeal, then take on another isolated column. They would halt Russian units with fixed defenses, then counterattack in its flanks, wreaking havoc on its supply lines. Often, Soviet units would become completely cut off from their logistical support and would have to be resupplied by airdrop, and they would do this again and again. A wave of Russians would advance and be mowed down, only to be followed by another wave of hapless Russian soldiers. Tactical initiative was so discouraged that no lessons were ever learned. Rather than adjust their tactics, Russian commanders simply threw more men at the problem until it eventually resolved itself. The Finnish army was partly so effective because of their high-mobility ski troops who could traverse the frozen forests far faster than dismounted Russian infantry. They were mobile enough to be able to move undetected into the rear of Soviet columns, where they ruined supplies and disrupted command and communications. One of the great stories to emerge from the Winter War is that of and I apologize for pronunciation, I have no idea how to pronounce Finnish names, Simo Haya. Simo was the Finnish army in microcosm, lightly armed, fast-moving, and highly effective. Simo hailed from the village of Rotjarvi, near the northern shore of Lake Ladoga. In 1925, he had served his mandatory year of service, 
then returned to his farm, where he continued to train with the reserves. Upon commencement of the war, he grabbed his rifle and reported to 34 Jaeger Regiment. With them, he would become one of the most celebrated marksmen of all time and earn his grisly moniker, the White Death. He often operated independently, striking out deep into the vast forests where he would establish a position near a major avenue of approach and wait. Sometimes he would go for days, but when his prey arrived, he did not waste ammunition on lowly infantry. He would hold out until the enemy's officers and supply trains came through. Then he would unleash his deadly skill. Prior to the war, he was known to be able to hit a target at 150 meters a dozen times in a minute with iron sights. Now he utilized that skill to torment Russian columns, who struggled to find him in his white camouflage amidst the snowpack and brush. Haya partook in many of the larger battles of the war, and during them racked up an impressive kill count. On December 21st alone, he killed 25 Russians. He became so deadly that rather than attempt to dislodge him with infantry, they simply began ordering artillery bombardments of his general area. Toward the end of the war, Haya had received a battlefield commission and commanded a platoon of ski troopers. During one of their patrols, he received an explosive round to the left side of his head, which nearly destroyed half his face. He survived, though, and eventually recovered from his injuries, but remained disfigured from his wound. Despite the heroism of her soldiers, Finland would suffer greatly during the war, and would eventually capitulate in the spring. After devastating, though not decisive, bombardment of Helsinki and a massive offensive in February of 1940, the Finns had had enough. They had critically wounded the Russian bear, killing 200,000 Russian soldiers and destroying 1,600 tanks against their own casualties of 25,000. No doubt Hitler took note of the Red Army's poor performance. The Russians won a Pyrrhic victory, but a victory nonetheless. Stalin demanded a chunk of the Karelian Isthmus, several islands in the Gulf of Finland, and small pieces of northern Finland, and the government in Helsinki agreed. Meanwhile, the war in the West appeared to fall into a quiet stalemate. French and German soldiers stared at each other from their respective fortresses, the Maginot and Siegfried lines. Air forces flew over each other's nations not to drop bombs, but leaflets. It was so boring that the United States Senator William Bora of Idaho called it a phony war, and the name stuck. Clearly, America remained naive. America's president, however, was not. In the aftermath of the invasion of Poland, Roosevelt began a correspondence with Churchill, with whom he could at least speak frankly about the war. At home, his efforts were routinely hamstrung by a populace stubbornly bound to isolationism. It was in this atmosphere that he would seek an unprecedented third term as president. We will cover that subject in another episode, though. Quickly along the Western Front, a live and let live attitude emerged. There were no daily artillery bombardments, nor did snipers pick off the odd soldier to keep the enemy's heads down. There were occasional skirmishes, but casualties barely exceeded a few thousand along the whole of the front. This was partly due to the French army's total lack of preparedness or modernization. It took the army weeks to mobilize, and the men were hardly prepared for war. General Sir Alan Brooke of the British Expeditionary Force took note of the French army's lack of discipline. Quote, Never have I seen anything more slovenly or badly turned out. Although ordered to give an eye left, hardly a man bothered to do so. End quote. This was the army that was supposed to save Western Europe. 
a conscript army with no offensive capability and men who were loath to serve. Well aware that the French army was unprepared to carry out offensive operations, at least initially, Hitler used his time wisely. After Poland fell, he began staging his men in the west and made sure their commanders kept them battle ready. Unlike the French army, which mostly sat around waiting for something to do, the Wehrmacht routinely trained its men to maintain their tactical proficiency. Additionally, German industrial might was at full tilt, and war supplies of every kind were arriving at supply depots hourly. Every day, more ammunition, fuel, small arms, planes, bombs, and tanks rolled off assembly lines and into quartermaster's waiting stockpiles. While fighting stagnated, the propaganda war was on. As soldiers and civilians alike sat by their radios in the evening, they would listen to broadcasts from across the channel. In England, people often tuned to listen in to William Joyce, a British fascist who fled to Germany just before the war. It's hard to say how effective he was, but most of his listenership probably came from mostly curious Englishmen looking for something a little more stimulating than the dry and censored BBC. The Allies attempted to use similar tactics against the German population, but it is naturally much more difficult to penetrate a closed society like that the Nazis had established. Instead, the Germans tuned into their own propaganda produced by Goebbels. It was certainly necessary to convince the population that their sacrifice was worthwhile. Since the army was now on campaign, every resource was diverted to it, leaving the civilian population under the harsh code of rationing. Even basic goods, like shoe leather and cloth, were diverted to the war effort. People resorted to carving wooden clogs when shoe leather was in short supply and mixing sawdust into their flour to fill it out. Of course, this austerity was only imposed on the general population. The party faithful and Hitler's entourage never wanted for anything. Himmler and Goering continued to live in luxury. Goering especially gorged himself on meat, booze, cheese, and women with an impressive lack of shame. He was hedonism incarnate. During the many lavish balls he threw for himself, his sausage-like fingers were adorned with enough gold and jewels to pay the debts of a small country. He also fancied himself an art collector. If ransacking conquered territories for the most prized cultural achievements counts as collecting art, he would seize whatever he wanted, whenever. Whether it be a priceless work of art from the Louvre or the finery of a Jewish family evicted from their homes. He would then hoard it, and when the Allied armies eventually approached, he squirreled it away, some of it never to be seen again. Himmler, for his part, kept his SS men well-fed and well-sexed. He created the Lebensborn program to create a generation of purebred Aryan supermen. What it really amounted to was a state-run chain of brothels. Any SS man could enter one of these homes, select a partner, attempt to impregnate her, and leave without an ounce of responsibility, whether his attempt was successful or not. The program was expanded somewhat by offering state pensions to unmarried women who bore the children of any soldier going to the front. Ostensibly, this was all a means of perpetuating the Aryan race, though Himmler probably recognized what an excellent incentive it was to young men eager to sow their wild oats. The Sitzkrieg, as some sardonically called it, would not last forever, though. Hitler had his eye on Denmark and Norway. The Nordic countries were not necessarily a part of Hitler's grand plan for Germanic conquest, but events of the previous six months had convinced him that seizing them would be beneficial. 
Primarily, he was concerned with Allied plans to take over the sparsely populated Scandinavian country to the north. Churchill was a strong proponent of occupying Norway for the purpose of securing its valuable iron ore and heavy water supplies. Heavy water being H2O that contains higher than average amounts of deuterium, a water isotope useful in fission of uranium. Additionally, holding Norway would allow the Allies a convenient invasion route into Germany and would bottle up the German U-boats based in the Baltic. Hitler was aware of all these benefits and so invaded in order to deny them to the Allies. He had his own reasons too, though. He wanted the many fjords along the North Sea as havens for his battleships and U-boats. The misty, fog-ridden, often overcast weather provided the perfect nesting ground for the German fleet to disappear into. It was a close call. The Allies had plans to occupy Norway, but never went through with them, simply mining Norwegian ports to keep her iron transports at bay. The day after the Allied mining operation, April 9, 1940, Germany invaded Denmark. The invasion was hardly an invasion at all. Most of the troops defending the southern border with Germany never fired a shot. The only battle occurred when German troops approached the royal palace and were fired upon by its guard. Within minutes, though, King Christian ordered his men to cease fire and surrendered the country. The entire ordeal took two hours. Who can blame the Danes, though? Why sacrifice themselves in a struggle they were bound to lose? Norway would fall next. The same morning, a task force of two battlecruisers, a pocket battleship, seven cruisers, and 14 destroyers sailed for Oslo and Kristiansand. They ferried 10,000 men across the Skagerrak and successfully landed them. The Norwegian shore batteries managed to sink the Blucher and kill all 1,000 of its crew. The German troops moved quickly and secured the airfield near Oslo, where another 800 men were flown in to assist with the invasion. Oslo fell that morning, but King Hakon... King Christian's brother, was on the run. He fled to the countryside with his government and all the gold they could carry. He wished to mount a resistance, but after fleeing for days and seeing the cause lost, he took his government into exile in Britain. In the meantime, Vidkun Kisling, the aspiring Nazi collaborator, declared himself prime minister in the absence of a government. Neither the Norwegians nor the Germans took him seriously. Within a month, he was removed by the occupying army and replaced with a military governor. For his inept betrayal, Kisling was found guilty of treason and executed after the war. By May 1940, Germany controlled Austria, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Denmark, and Norway. Her armies were undefeated and appeared invincible. The Kriegsmarine, on the other hand, was not quite so fortunate. The German surface fleet was modest. The Treaty of Versailles limited German tonnage, so they were forced to make every bit count. They put to sea three pocket battleships, battleships consisting of less than 10,000 tons. The Deutschland, later named the Lutzow, the Admiral Scheer, and the Graf Spee. Armed with 11-inch guns and capable of 26 knots, they were formidable in their own right, but no match for the vastly larger Royal Navy. The German high seas fleet also possessed two battlecruisers, the Neisenau, and the Scharnhorst. None of the vessels would be used in conventional roles, though. Rather, they would all be used as commerce raiders. The U-boats comprised the other arm of the German fleet, and they would prove a constant menace to Allied planners. In the first two months of the war, they would sink 56,000 tons of Allied shipping, 
but their single greatest victory would come in the daring raid on the Scottish naval yard at Scapa Flow. The raid was masterminded by Lieutenant Gunther Preen, a submarine ace if there ever was one. He was renowned for his daring and aggressive style. For that reason, he was selected by Commodore Dernitz, chief of the submariners, to plan and execute the daring mission. In early October, he and his crew departed their pens in the Baltic and sailed for the North Sea. Though they spotted several vessels as they traversed, the skipper made no move. His men were perplexed. Why was the captain acting so strangely and letting their prey escape? They would soon learn why. On October 13th, they spotted the Orkney Islands and dove. There, Lieutenant Priel informed his crew of their mission. They let out a cheer and morale soared. They inflict a blow on the Royal Navy it would not soon forget. That night, they sailed ahead into the harbor, silently under battery power. When they surfaced, the harbor was brightly lit despite the new moon. The aurora was very active that night, but the submarine remained unspotted. Prien raised his periscope, searching for a target, and he found one. The battleship Royal Oak. He gave range and torpedo depth, and his men emptied their tubes. He ordered his vessel around and emptied his rear tubes. Within moments, the Royal Oak was alight with shoots of flame. The destroyers began signaling, and suddenly the harbor came to life. Prien was already on his way out, though. His vessel dove, and he left Scapa Flow as silently as he had entered. The Germans had achieved a startling early victory, but the British would soon score victories at sea of their own. From the moment the Germans had put their capital ships to sea, the Royal Navy was in pursuit. The Deutschland was met by the British merchant cruiser Rawalpindi. It hardly stood a chance against the mighty battleship, but its captain put up a valiant fight. His entire crew of 270 souls was lost, but they had alerted the fleet to the location of the enemy. The entire North Sea fleet was underway, intent on hunting down and destroying the German sea wolves. Unable to catch them in the terrible North Sea weather, all but the Graf Spee were able to make it to the safety of Norwegian fjords. The Graf Spee was instead sailing for the South Atlantic, pursued by the Royal Navy. Its skipper, Captain Hans Longsdorf, was a man from another era in the age of unrestricted submarine warfare. He was chivalrous and always allowed his prey to surrender. During his voyage to Argentina, he sank nine vessels without taking a single life. That would end on December 13, 1939, though, when three cruisers spotted the Graf Spee off the coast of Brazil. The Ajax, Exeter, and Achilles may have been outgunned, but they were certainly not outclassed. Their commander, Commodore Harwood, managed to get the jump on Longsdorf by immediately attacking. Harwood had hoped he could spook the German commander into thinking a larger force was behind, and succeeded. Wounded, but not mortally so, the Graf Spee made for Montevideo. There they were received as unwelcome guests and allowed only 72 hours to make quick repairs. When their welcome expired, Longstorff led his men to the mouth of the Plata River, where, upon sighting British warships waiting for him, he ordered his crew to abandon ship and scuttled her. The first of the German sea wolves was sunk. This concludes this week's episode. In the next installment, we will begin the invasion of France and the Low Countries and get to know Charles de Gaulle. I hope you will join us.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.